I'm grateful to be with you this Easter morning as we celebrate Jesus. Um, by the way, he is alive, <laughs> and that's why we are here, uh, to celebrate the risen King of Kings. We are a community uh, that is about Jesus. He's at the center of it, and we are learning what it means to be loved by him. Uh, and as we just saw from your own witness, your own testimony, which was so great to hear, and um, with the kids in the background, like they go with us wherever we are on video or in the building, uh, your own testimony has declared that Jesus is not just like some irrelevant idea. He is a living person who comes to bring life and hope and transformation into our lives and our world. And it is actually Easter Sunday uh, that is the key fact of history for the entire story. The Apostle Paul said that if Christ has not been raised, then Christians are to be pitied among all people. He says that if Christ isn't raised, we're still in our sins, and we believe he is alive, and there is oh, good news for the whole world. So Jesus is more than a teacher, more than a sage, but the risen king, and that is the good news. And in these incredible verses that we just heard uh, from Tammy, we find uh, an entirely life-changing message if we have ears to hear. Uh, so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at how Easter poses three challenges to us. And with each challenge, there is a comfort or a consolation. Uh, so three challenges, each with its own consolation. The, the challenge to our understanding, how we think about the world, uh, a challenge uh, to how we understand relationships and the way we experience the world, and ultimately a challenge to respond, how we live in the world. And so uh, we'll begin by looking at Mark's account of the Easter story this morning and how he speaks to these realities of challenge and consolation. As we read, the, the Sabbath was passed. On Good Friday, we celebrated uh, the death of Jesus. You'll see the art from around uh, the room that displays the stations of the cross, these mo movements of Jesus' story in a visual way that, that tells us what Jesus endured on Friday. But the Jewish Sabbath has ended, Saturday's over, it's early Sunday morning, and it says that Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, these are expensive kind of perfume, uh, oil-type mixture that would prepare a cadaver for burial, and so that they might go and anoint him, it says. And so very early on the first day of the week, the, the sun had risen, and they went to the tomb, saying to each other, how, who's going to roll away that big, heavy tomb, or that big, heavy uh, stone at the entrance of the tomb? And so these women, these three women, are women who had been very transformed by the presence of Jesus. Their friendship with Jesus had made a, a radical difference in their life. Mary Magdalene, a tradition tells us, had been the prostitute that anointed Jesus' feet. And so she experienced radical acceptance and love and restoration of identity. And, and these three women uh, are actually people, the only three who hung with Jesus throughout the entire crucifixion. Mark mentions this in chapter 15, verse 40, where these three women are named as witnesses to the crucifixion while all the men had run away, one of them forgetting even his robe. And so uh, this, these women show incredible devotion. On one hand, they have incredible devotion, but they have absolutely no idea what's about to happen. 
And so that's the first thing I want to look at this morning. Easter challenges our outlook, our worldview, our understanding of things. It's actually fairly funny. Jesus had told them and Mark at least three times that he would rise on the third day, but none of the disciples were having any of it. It wasn't registering to them. And so they have this expensive anointing oil for a dead body. In other words, they're going to the tomb under the expectation that Jesus is dead. And they're even anxious over how will we get into the body itself. They don't even know how they're going to get there. In other words, they live with the same expectation as every other human on the face of the planet, and that is that dead people stay dead. And they've been staying dead for millennia. And so they assume that this is the final word on Jesus' life. They have uh, no idea of what's coming. I do think we have to be careful of what C.S. Lewis uh, calls chronological snobbery. That is, when we look at the ancient world, we think that somehow they weren't as smart as us and they don't know about our modern uh, knowledge. But guess what? They knew dead people stayed dead. Uh, Probably better than we do, actually, because they were around death every day. Uh, And so it's simply not the case. And the message of Easter was just as challenging and confronting in an ancient setting as it is in a modern one. Mark goes on and tells us what happened. He says, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Their greatest obstacle wasn't something that they were going to be able to deal with in their own strength and power. Something had already happened. This is a microcosm of the gospel, by the way. What we think that we might be able to achieve, God says it's already done and you couldn't achieve it to begin with. And so they get there, and the tomb's already rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. No kidding. Think about how alarmed you are when there's a spider in your house. (laughs) They are alarmed for good reason. There's this divine being perhaps emanating some kind of glow, I don't know, but he's white and he's striking, white robe and all, and he's there where the body should be. And he tells them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Look with your eyes. And that is the message of Jesus, or the gospel, that Jesus was dead, not mostly dead, but all dead, and he is alive, and the place where his body should be is now empty. And so here's what we need to see this morning in this passage. It's that Easter does not reinforce the expectations of our world. It challenges them totally. The expectation for the women was simply that the Messiah they had loved and followed and served was dead, and it was the end of the movement as they knew it, and Jesus was now just another in a long line of failed would-be messiahs who are dead. And this is our expectation as well, if we admit it, that death is the end. That is how we think. We may have some vague notion of something after, um, but most modern people see life this way. Game over at death. Uh, We tend to see it in our culture as a closed universe. There's no divine intervention of any sort. There's only cause and effect And the law of the universe is not resurrection. The law of the universe is actually the second law of thermodynamics, which works like this. Everything moves from order to disorder, decay, entropy. And so with that, we assume that entropy has the last word on life, and therefore you better get on and have some fun, right? And so the challenge for us is to see how the gospel and resurrection Sunday says, wait a minute, God has actually worked in history, 
He's acted in history. Something has happened that has blown the lid off of death entirely. And so the challenge for us is to be changed in the way we think, to be changed by the data of Easter. In fact, there's the entire way that scientific knowledge works is we say a theory is good if, if it explains more data than not, right? If, if it sheds light on more data than not. And I would propose to you that Easter is not just a theory, it's actually a revelation. It's an announcement. The angel has to come and say, here's what this means. That tomb is empty, it means Jesus is alive. And, and it is not just a theory, but it is an announcement that I believe, if you will trust it, will actually unveil more than it veils in terms of how you see your life and your world and society and suffering and goodness and evil and all of these things. C.S. Lewis once remarked that I believe in the sun because I see by its light. Right? It's not so much that I stare at it and see it, it's that I see everything by it. And it is similar in this kind of story, that once you let the resurrection do some damage to your presuppositions, you'll begin to see things by it. And so there is a temptation, though, for us to say, oh, it's just a myth. It's just a, a myth that the early church invented, a legend that was circulated in the ancient world, and they were, of course, very um, gullible, and so they went with it. Uh, Mark is not writing myth. He's actually writing history, and here's part of how we know. About 80 years after the life of Jesus, there was this Greek pagan philosopher, a guy named Celsus, and uh, Celsus despised Christianity. You can read Origen's letter against Celsus. Uh, if you want to go have some really dry reading on the internet, you can do that. Uh, Celsus uh, had lots to say about why Christianity was wrong and stupid and to be despised. And he wrote trying to refute this entire Jesus movement, and one of his most powerful arguments that had the most resonance in his own day was this. He said, he argued that the testimony of the resurrection was false because it relied on the testimony of women, and therefore it was entirely unreliable. Right? And, and this made sense to his peers. They said, yeah, that's right. They are just hysterical. We can't trust women. In fact, even in the Jewish world, the Mishnah, uh, the tradition of the Jews, said that a woman's testimony was inadmissible in court. How's that for you, ladies? Feel, feeling good, right? This is the ancient world, and this is the way it worked. But Mark is doing something different, isn't he? The gospel writer, the one who tells us the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus actually hangs all of the weight of his, his testimony on the eyewitness account of three women. And so what is Mark doing? His only eyewitnesses as women, named women in the ancient world, if you named your eyewitnesses that were a part of the story, it was really a footnote saying, go look them up right? The, the eyewitnesses were starting to die off about the time the Gospels were being written. And so it was kind of a way of saying, go, go look them up. Go find Salome and ask her about that day. And so there are these named witnesses. And here's what I want you to see. If Mark were writing a myth or a legend, he would have never named his sources as women. He would have never done it. He, he would never invent a kind of story whose only validation was resting on someone who was seen as invalid in that society. You wouldn't make that up. But the fact is that he does, and he puts the entire weight of his witness on these women. And I think that's actually a very compelling reason to take what he passed on to us as fact. It's not only, by the way, a very subversive way to assert the reliability of your story, to assert it on witness accounts that are inadmissible, 
Um, But it's also a signpost, if you will, of the new way that the Jesus community will operate with men and women as equals. He's saying, here's the deal. Jesus is alive, and it's changed literally everything. Our social structure is even being radically transformed by the new creation breaking forth through Jesus' resurrection. And so the only reason for this kind of story, based on this kind of evidence, is that there was a changed worldview, a changed understanding of what had happened in these women and in Mark. There was an empty tomb, and it challenged these assumptions. It said that Jesus is alive. That is the new data. That is the challenge, but it's also a consolation that Jesus is alive, and therefore death is not the last word. Which brings us to the second reality of the story. So we're, we're confronted and challenged in our thinking and consoled that death is not the end. But we're also challenged uh, to relook at how we view relationship. This story challenges our understanding of relationship. It addresses our experience of alienation in the world. It, it, there was once a time in our society when guilt was a thing, and I think we're a, in many ways a post-guilt society. We operate more in shame now than guilt, and, and people don't necessarily have moral categories to feel as if I've done something wrong, but we do live with an existential experience of alienation, that something's wrong, and I can't quite put words to it. This sense of being alienated even from ourselves and from others And the gospel accounts actually put language to what causes that alienation. One of the things that we come to understand in our world is that relationships are built on contract. That is, I will do something for you as long as it's good for me. I'll date you, I won't marry you as long as you make me happy. I will be friends with you as long as I'm getting something from you. And so we relate in that quid pro quo. I gave a baseball glove to one of the dads on our team a couple weeks ago. It was our first practice. They're from another country, never played baseball before. And I'm like, you have to play catch with your son. It is literally the coolest thing in the world, right? So here you go. Like, I just had an extra. And, uh, and the next time he saw me, he came at me with three or four attempts to make payment. I, I, he had to offer something back in return. And it was like, no, I just really want you to have fun playing b- baseball with your son. Like, it's cool. Go do that, right? Um, and so it, it's actually against everything in human nature to be given a free gift. We want to earn our way. Look at what the angel says to the women that challenges the way we view relationship. It addresses our alienation, and it challenges contractual relationship. He says, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Think about that message. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. Think about it for a second. Jesus could have said a lot of things um, through this angel. He could have passed on a different message. But he says, tell Peter, you'll see me in Galilee. Peter's hearing that. He's going to remember that was the first place he met Jesus. It was the first place where he went, oh, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He's going to have some aha moments. And he says, you know, it's actually really interesting. He says, not only will you see me, it's a promise of future ongoing relationship, but it is addressed to Peter in specific. He could have just said, tell the disciples, which would have included Peter. But he names Peter in particular. Why is that? It's because Peter had utterly failed just two nights before. Peter had absolutely come 
to rock bottom of his life. Peter uh, had denied that he knew his best friend Jesus three times under the incredible pressure of a teenage girl by a fireplace, right? Just, he, he cracked, just couldn't, right? And, and, and Peter had just absolutely failed, and his failure was public, so now he's carrying shame. He's totally crushed. He failed to live up to his own hype. He promised Jesus, I won't deny you. I'll go to my death for you. So not only does he fail his own hype, he actually is disloyal to his best friend in a public way. Jesus could have said, go tell that backstabbing, worthless Peter that he can find me in Galilee, right? Put the burden on Peter. Or I'll see him if he comes and grovels and cowers and names what he did. But Jesus offers a word of grace. He offers a word of grace that utterly melts the heart. And you might say it's a balm for transgressions. A balm, by the way, is a healing agent. You go out on a long bike ride, something's going to be sore. You put balm on that, right? It's his way of healing what is wounded. I don't know. That's my experience of balm, okay? So um, that's diapers, too. Not mine, my kids. It's been a while. And Jesus could have said, a lot of other things, but instead he offers a word of grace that works healing on the sorest point in Peter's life. Jesus doesn't work the way that you and I work. What we want to say to people is, if you, faithless, backstabbing person, repent, I might love and forgive you. But Jesus says, I love and forgive you. And so that he makes it possible for Peter to repent. You see, what he's saying is, I will see you. Right? I'm going ahead of you. I have my movement, and I want you to be a part of it. Uh, he's forgiving them there before they've ever repented. He's forgiving them so that they can repent, to turn from their shame and their guilt and their dis- alienation and return in relationship to God that's right and full of grace. And so Jesus relates not on the basis of contract, but on the basis of covenant. That is, he'll be true to his promise no matter what it costs. And so there's this balm, if you will, for transgressions that totally transforms our view of relationship. I mentioned the idea of balm as healing, but what about transgression? What do we mean when we talk about that? I had this dog growing up. His name was Sparky. And uh, Sparky was an interesting, not very smart dog, um, but he was cute. And my dad, for the longest time, had this rule where he had to kind of stay on the linoleum and couldn't come on the carpet. There's a, remember linoleum? Yeah. So uh, if you don't, um, you missed out. Uh, and so uh, you can find it underneath your carpet, I'm sure. Uh, and so you, uh, you had this line, and my dad would prevent Sparky from crossing it. But Sparky was wily, and every time he would have that boundary, he'd just put that little paw over the line. You know, and before long, he, his whole body would be on the carpet with that hind leg still on the linoleum, just kind of looking at us like, "You okay with this? You okay with this?" And it was really cute, but it was a transgression. <laughs> he went across a line that he wasn't supposed to, and that is the trouble with transgression. You see, the Bible is so clear and unambiguous when it talks about the problem in human nature. It's that we have, according to the prophet Isaiah, all gone astray off the path of what God has intended for humanity as his image bearers, violating this fundamental relationship of trust and obedience to the creator. And and it's called sin, and it brings alienation. And maybe in your life you have examples of 
very dramatic transgression, or maybe if you're more like myself, you veer towards the under-the-radar transgression, but it's transgression nonetheless. The obvious sins are easy to point out, but like Sparky, what happens is inevitably, by degrees, we push the boundaries. Little bit by little bit, we move off of what God has called us to. We blur what is appropriate to our nature as creatures, putting ourselves in the place of God, saying, I will define good and evil for myself. Paul says in Romans 1 that the problem with humanity is that they didn't give thanks to God. That's interesting, right? To define rebellion as simply not giving thanks. Right? It's to recognize I'm actually in charge in my life. No thank you to your lordship. And we can do it in big ways and subtle ways. And Paul says that the result was that humans worship the creature rather than the creator. And humans have an aim. Like God actually made us for a purpose. It's to be holy or to be totally devoted to his good purposes. Jesus sums up those good purposes in Matthew 22 when he says we're to love God with our whole heart and love our neighbor as ourself. He says that's what fulfilling God's good purposes looks like. And love, right, love is the self-giving action, not just a feeling. And he says, actually, love God, give yourself to him and his purposes and to your neighbors as you would want done to you. And so it's against that aim that we transgress. And it was against that aim that Peter had utterly failed, denouncing that he even knew one of his closest friends whom he had seen heal the sick and raise the dead and restore sight to the blind and cleanse the leper and feed the masses. And he said, no, not him. He's not my friend. But Jesus says, yes, you, Peter, you are my friend. We are friends. And we're friends because I took the cost of every transgression and now I'm alive. You substituted yourself in the place of God and now me as God in the flesh, Jesus, I have substituted myself in the place of sinful humanity. And I've become the one who has transgressed on the cross so that I could pay the full cost and consequences of it so you can be restored, able to respond to my love. You see, Jesus' resurrection opens relationship that has been lost through human transgression. And he pronounces this balm for healing on that relationship. And he challenges all of our understanding of relationship based on merit. And he consoles us with relationship based on grace. And he says, it's unearned by you. It's earned by me and given freely. And it will transform you if you receive it. Therefore, he says, go tell Peter. He, He wants to make sure that the boldest sinner becomes the one who grasps grace. And he'll make him the leader of the the early Jerusalem church. He'll become one of the most bold and courageous leaders. In our world, the most qualified people are the ones with the perfect record. But according to the gospel, it's because Peter is one of the biggest failures that he's most uniquely qualified to be one of the most bold and courageous leaders. It's his grasp on the depths of God's grace that makes him the most suitable person in the movement of Jesus, to declare that grace to the world. And so the kingdom that Jesus brought doesn't work the way of religion. The way of religion will tell you that you're saved by your work and your strength and your correct standards. And so failure and repentance is always traumatic within that system. But the gospel, on the other hand, says that the message of Easter is that in Jesus, 
God came in the flesh and died in weakness. And that it is when we are weak and that when we've failed and own it, God can move powerfully in our lives. It's when we're honest about our weakness and our need for God's grace that his power comes invading and flooding our life to bring new life. And so we repent as a way of life, not as a traumatic interruption, but as a constant reorientation to grace as our only life. See, admitting failure is so much like death, but it's death to pride. And by the way, it's the only death, and it's through that death that uh, we become alive through resurrection by grace. You see, Peter can then go out on Pentecost and proclaim the resurrection as good news because it's the empty tomb that empties out the grave of all of its finality. It's, it, it empties uh, the grave of its power. You see, death is emptied of its final authority on life because Jesus has conquered it. Guilt is emptied of its corrosive power in our life because Jesus has forgiven it. And shame is emptied of its embarrassment in our lives because Jesus has covered it with his honor. And so the wound of sin is healed and we're reconciled through his death is what the scriptures say. So the one being to whom all of our transgressions are utterly offensive has been crucified as if all of those transgressions were his. And he's been raised and he doesn't come for vengeance. He comes to invite us to be loved as we are. And so that's the challenge of Easter. It's to give up relating on contract based on what we achieve. And it is to be consoled by relating on grace based on what Christ has achieved. And so we're challenged that we're loved as we are, but Mark doesn't end there. God loves us as we are, but he, doesn't, he loves us too much to leave us there. Finally, the last thing I want to show you this morning is how Easter challenges us to respond to its news. Verse 8 says that they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So here's one of the most fascinating endings to any of the four Gospels. Uh, Mark, the end of Mark, by the way, is very debated in the scholarly realms, and it's, of course, very, all very interesting, and you can read lots about it. But we know that Mark wrote up to verse 8, and there's some scripture afterwards that we think maybe some scribes added in from other eyewitness traditions and testimonies, and it got stitched in. And maybe Mark's original ending may have rotted off of a scroll. We don't know. But we know that he ends in a very odd way. Uh, one scholar, Morna Hooker, says that uh, Mark lets the reader make their own conclusion. She says this. She says, rather than having the conclusion made for us by the women, we are confronted with a choice, with a crucial step of faith. Rather than filling in all the details of what they do with their next step, the reader of Mark is left going, what do I do with this? How will I fill in the details? I will either receive the news or I'll reject it. I'll either enter the story in trust and obedience, or I'll reject it. And we know that the women ultimately weren't silent. The other gospel accounts tell us that they go back and they tell the other disciples. And they certainly shared, and they shared in a way that ultimately on Pentecost, it was shared publicly by Peter, and the whole world was changed by their witness, by the preaching of these three women to their friends. But the words that Mark uses to describe their experience was that they were astonished and afraid. And it, it's a pattern in Mark. In fact, every time somebody sees the identity of who Jesus is as the Messiah, he says, shh, don't tell. And immediately, what do they do? They go spill the beans. They can't shut up about it. 
They just can't be silent. And now Jesus is fully vindicated in his messianic identity, and the women walk away going speechless, right? The, the reader of Mark is supposed to go, well, wait a minute, that's not right, right? We have to tell the news of who Jesus is. And so the angel gives them two words. It says, don't be afraid and go tell. He said to them, don't be alarmed. He is risen, he's not here, and go tell the disciples. Don't be afraid is the implication of Easter, friends. It is the implication that Jesus has defeated all the powers of evil on the cross. They've done their worst to him, and he's come out victorious. Therefore, if you trust him, you will share in his victory in the end, because whatever it is we lose, it's not ultimately and permanently lost. Don't be afraid doesn't mean nothing bad will happen. It means nothing bad is the end and final word. Your failure, your struggle, your health, your money, your loved ones, it's not the end. There is another world coming, that is, this world will be renewed and it will share in the resurrection glory of Jesus. Jesus, Paul says, was the first fruits, that there's a harvest of resurrection around the corner. And in this way, we're free from the world and all of its worry and anxiety because Jesus has risen. He's not in the tomb and death is not the end. But the angel also says, go tell. It means that we are invited to be a part of the story God's writing. You see, Christianity is not about getting you into heaven when you die. It is actually about getting you to join the mission of heaven here now and to join in and seek all of God's goodness and holiness and justice here now in his power and his presence until the end. And by, it's about seeking to join him in his mission to reconcile, to bring an end to the alienation we experience through Jesus. And so that, that is the challenge of Easter, friends. It utterly shakes up our understanding of the world and the pattern of decay and says, no, death is not the end. Jesus is alive. Be consoled. It also challenges the way we experience relationship and says contract is not the way God does it. It is about covenant. It is about grace. It challenges the way we attempt to be in relationship with God. It's about receiving, not earning. And finally, it challenges us to respond. Let's be clear. No response is a response. It is a response of rejection. But to hear the good news and respond in trust and obedience is the response that the gospel is inviting us to have. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're at, where you're at in your thinking. If you're thinking about a world where God is absent, the resurrection says he is present. If you're experiencing alienation today, I want to say to you, you are welcomed back to the arms of a loving God through what Jesus has done. And you are invited, if you're stuck here today, to trust again that you do not have to be afraid, that you can join in the revolution of life. Today can be a breakthrough moment for you. I'm going to pray and invite the band to lead us in a response of worship and praise to the God who's defeated the grave. And if you're in a spot today where you are feeling it is time to respond and trust, it's time to receive a relationship with God that is healed, where he heals my place of transgression through his forgiveness. I want to say we would love to pray with you. We have friends in the back who are just available to pray and invite you uh, to experience that today. Whatever place he wants to move you from death to life, we'd love to pray with you in it. So let's stand and proclaim God's goodness as we sing together. Lord, we thank you 
for your victory over death and sin and the devil. And we stand in the victory of the cross and empty tomb. It's never just the one. It's always the two. It is the cross by which we are reconciled and it is through the empty tomb that we have victory and new life. Bring your new creation life in us by your spirit, we pray, as we sing and believe.